It's time for the show that scours the globe for news that interests you. We've scoured a few other planets, too. Didn't find much. Coming to you almost live from their command center just beneath the Earth's crust, here's Jeremy Bray and Wesley Faulkner with Global Geek News. Welcome to the Global Geek News Podcast, the show that tries to answer the question, just what the heck is going on in the media, entertainment, and technology worlds. As always, I am your host, Jeremy Bray, better known as PC Nerd 37 to most of you. And on the other end of Skype is my co-host, Wesley Faulkner. How's it going, Wesley? Uh, at the very moment, it's awesome. It seems like uh, our bandwidth issues that we've been struggling with are uh, behind us. Yeah, and all it took was a little bit of modem firmware updating. Yeah, it's just called Time Warner. They noticed that my firmware was extremely old, pushed an update, and so far so good. We're rocking. Yeah, let's see how much extra bandwidth this uses, and maybe you'll go over that 40 gigabyte cap or something. Oh, oh, we don't have a cap. Oh, lucky you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have a two-year agreement, so I am uh, that cap is for a new account, so I don't suffer from that. Ah, See, that's one of the things I kind of like about Comcast is that I don't have any, um, I mean, I have a cap and stuff, but there's no contract or anything, which if I could have a contract and no cap, I'd probably almost prefer that. But yeah, that's one of the nice things about Comcast is I can call up and cancel whenever I want or whatever. Yeah, well, yeah, I I opted into the contract. I I could have gone month to month. They usually do month to month. Uh, but they they locked in a lower rate, and uh, I didn't. I mean, what I'm going to do? Go to DSL. So I was fine with the two year agreement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I I don't even think Comcast offers any kind of contract or whatever. But I don't know. With, with as much with as often as I have issues lately, the past couple of weeks have been billing issues, which that's a nightmare. I can't explain. They can't seem to explain it. I just know that I owe more money than I than we used to. That's all I know. Oh. Yeah. So it's not a, it's not a billing issue, as in they stop billing you. Oh, I wish. <laughs> no, this is more a case of somehow with when we submitted the payment, when it fell in the billing cycle, as to where there's some charges on the account that because of the way it came during the billing cycle that don't actually show up on the bill but are still on the account. Um, plus there was issues with last month's bill. They were supposed to have deducted a whole bunch of things for like extra equipment that we didn't have, extra services and stuff like that. Well, that kind of screwed up how it's shown on the bill. Plus we had our one year promotional period end, which that really rocketed the bill up. Exactly. So that's why I had the two year agreement. (laughs) Yeah. Well, usually whenever our promotion ends, I just call up and yell at them for a little bit, threaten to leave, and they give me another year or six months of promotion or whatever. Although I think they can only do that like three times in a row. Then you have to have um, like three months or something like that where you don't have a promotion before you can get the promotion back or 
or start getting promotions again or whatever. Or at least that's the issue that I ran into in the past. Although we complained enough that we got that down to actually instead of like three months, it was more like two weeks. Yep. But yes, yeah. But enough about cable. <laughs> yeah, I could probably gripe all night about that. But anyway, this is episode number eighty-one of the Global Geek News podcast. Of course, you can find all of our show notes at globalgeeknews.com, so you can follow along with us. Um, oh, there was something else I was going to mention. Oh, um, I was going through the uh, our podcast numbers. For those that don't know, I do our um, tracking of the podcast through PodTrack, which if you're a podcaster looking to track like the number of downloads you have, where your audience is, and stuff like that, it's a great service. And I happen to notice that China is no longer our second largest audience. It is unknown. So apparently we have a lot of aliens that are a big fan of the show. Well, it is global geek news, so if they're trying to learn about a planet, it makes sense that they would subscribe to the show. Well, I'm thinking, knowing this, I think we need to rename the show Galactic Geek News. <laughs> well, it's going might, to might be a little bit harder to find stories if we do that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't I know. Like, uh, all these are Earth stories. I mean, why why can't we go a little bit further? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Stories have been so slow for the pretty much the whole month of September so far. I mean, I barely had enough stories for this week, so maybe a couple of stories from Mars might not be a bad idea. Well, but, if we can find them, I, I, but. Uh... Uh, I, that might be a little harder. Maybe we can uh, get some user submissions from our readers. So those in the unknown, if you have some stories you would like to talk about us to talk about, maybe we can uh, maybe we can get submissions. Yes, definitely. I would be more than happy to see some submissions from people on Vulcan or Cardassia or whatever. Just feel yeah, free. What's, to... what's the deal with that new warp drive that everyone's talking about? Yeah, what's what's going on with that? Yeah, well, I'm looking at the numbers now, and the numbers are kind of, like, really screwy now. Or, But, yeah, the unknown, well, see, I don't know, PodTrack is screwed up. It's like, today, the U.S. is the biggest, like usual, and China was number three because unknown was number two, and then, of course, like, you got Russia and stuff after that. Now it's showing unknown at number four and Russia at number three, with China again at number two. How long has oh. it been like that? Oh, a couple hours, maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe it's just, just like hiccup. Yeah, I don't know, because usually the pod track stuff only updates maybe once a day, so I'm not sure what's quite going on, but yeah, we definitely have an audience a little bit of everywhere. U.S., of course, the big one, Canada, Brazil, Australia, Russia, China. Uh, looks like we're big in Germany and the U.K., Finland, Norway... Ireland, all kinds of places. So we are definitely a global show. And also, if anybody's interested, please tell us what it is, what um, program it is that you're listening through, whether you're getting it through Zoom, Marketplace, iTunes, whatever, because we're all um, we're getting a tremendous amount of downloads from an unknown player. So I'm again, I'm not sure if that's a player from outer space or what but there's an unknown player that's not showing up. But anyway, might as well go ahead and get to our stories, since there are at least some stories this week. Yeah. Starting with, 
apparently in-game advertising might actually work. Yeah, and this is actually recorded from a, a company that's pretty reputable, um, at least it, it has been um, historically-wise. Nielsen Company found that um, the, the advertising for certain NHL games, um, from, from Madden to uh, so NBA Live and to NBA... Um, did I say Madden? Uh, maybe it's not Madden, but... No Madden. Said that, so Gatorade, uh, their sales were up 24% because of in-game, in-game advertising. Yeah, I'm kind of, I don't, I'm kind of curious to know if if you can contribute all of that to in-game advertising. I mean, I know they advertise on like TV and stuff quite a bit, but supposedly the Nielsen Company, which I don't trust their ratings at all, which I know I, I think I've talked about that on the show in the past, or if not, maybe I'll throw up a blog post about why their ratings are so screwed up, especially for TV. But anyway, according to them, I I guess they monitored the games NHL 09, NHL 2010, NBA Live 07, 08, and 09, and NBA Street Home Court. And apparently, thanks to that, Gatorade sales are up 24%, which, if it it really is that effective, I kind of understand why during the last presidential election Obama had his campaign images on billboards in, I think it was one of the burnout games. Yeah, and that that was pretty awesome. I mean, I agree. Um, most people are spending a lot more time in games than they are watching TV. At least the, 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 mic, the proportions have shifted more towards games and television. And there's more freedom with ads in video games as in flexibility and what you can do with them and, and plus it makes the game seem more real. So I think these numbers are actually encouraging for everyone as a whole. Uh, advertising is a space that kind of uh, helps decrease costs um, when it comes to video games and uh, could also open up the possibilities of games even being free with advertising support, especially when we're talking about mobile. I, I know it seemed like there was. I'm trying to think of a game that was going a big game that was going free with advertising support. It seemed like it was a, maybe a Battlefield game was going to be try, was going to try and do that. I, I don't know. I think it was like I think that's like Battlefield Heroes or something like that. But I don't know if that was ever successful or anything. I never hear anything about that game. But it looks like this is. I'm kind of curious to know if this is a case. If this is something that's happens to be the case across the board, or if this is just true of sports games. Because when you're when you're playing sports games, you're gonna. This is the kind of it makes a lot more sense because you're gonna see when you're watching normal sports, you're gonna see Gatorade bottles, you're gonna see the billboards with a sponsor on the billboard, you're gonna right. see all that kinds of stuff. But I'm kind of curious to know if you throw a Gatorade ad into Duke Nukem Forever, if people are actually gonna want to go out and buy Gatorade because of that. Right, and same with like Halo Reach, where we're gonna put advertising, but uh, there's still an opportunity to do some sort of branding. Uh, like if you look, think back about the the Star Trek remake that they did that they released last year, Nokia was prominently sponsored there. So even though it, it might not seem like there's a possibility there could be some synergy with some advertisers, uh, depending on creativity, there's definitely uh, branding that could be done and. Uh, in product placements, like you said, Duke Nukem. Uh, I'm sure that maybe you know, think about maybe some gun manufacturer sponsoring that. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. I 
prefer like the old school gaming where they have all of these products and they look and like the coloring and stuff is similar to what you'd see like maybe on like a Pepsi can or something like that but they'd come up with some cool funny name instead of actually using the product's name yeah. I always used to enjoy going around games and finding stuff like that where it's just witty developers coming or artists or whatever coming up with this stuff and I, that that was something that always I always enjoyed in games and it kind of sucks to see that going away to have real advertising in the games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's creativity, but um, but I would consider all those now placeholders for other other um, other products that could be worked in at a later time. Like, you get an upgrade, and then you get the you get the Pepsi upgrade instead of the, the Popsco upgrade. Yeah, it could be... At- I don't know. That's another one of my big issues is the upgrades and games and stuff like that. I mean, I can understand downloadable content, but when you're... One of my biggest pet peeves lately is getting a special item when you pre-order a game at a certain store. Um, There's a game coming out. Oh, I cannot think of what it is. I'm I'm thinking it's like uh, WWE's SmackDown vs. Raw 2010. I was just happened to be watching a thing on it on GameSpot last week. And I think it was a case of if you pre-order it at Best Buy, you get a certain extra wrestler. If you pre-order it at GameStop, you get certain outfits or something like that for your wrestlers. It's like, when I buy the game, I want the whole game. I don't want it depend on, to depend on where I buy the game. Yeah. Because I, I, I agree don't with I don't want to feel like I'm losing out if I buy the game, or if I'm losing out of content if I buy the game at Best Buy instead of GameStop. Right, and so it could be like a place something you just did not know. It's like, oh, if I known, I would have gone there. But it's it's their di- differentiator. Um, it, it's the only way that they have advertising, especially if they're spend, if they're charging the same amount. Um, it, yeah, that is a little sad trend. Maybe hopefully they should uh, make that you know something that's more universal. Yeah, that trend needs to die. But speaking of gaming, supposedly 72% of adults support gaming laws. Yeah, it's making it illegal for kids to... Or I'm not sure if it's the vendor or the, the kids would be prosecuted, but to make games illegal to sell certain games to minors. Um, in this article, they call them ultra-violent games or sexually explicit games. Yeah, apparently... Um, they, the Common Sense Media did a survey, and according to them, seven. And this, of course, being um, having to do with the California law that got overturned by the state Supreme Court or whatever about it being a uh, free speech issue, and, and now this is going up to the um, na- National Supreme Court, and... Apparently, the Common Sense Media did this survey for the sake of this court case where they say that 72% of adults support this ban on ultra-violent video games, and it's actually not quite that simple. Apparently, oh, I'm looking for the exact percentages here. Apparently, they surveyed 2,100 adults. 46% said they would somewhat support the law. 
26% they would strongly support it. So they're just kind of lumping that all into one thing and saying, oh, hey, 72% of adults actually support this. And one of the things you really have to look at is exactly the question that was asked to the people. Yep. Um, In this case, the question was, oh, let's see. It says if... uh would you support or oppose a law that prohibits minors from purchasing video games that depict killing, maiming, or sexually assaulting an image of a human being? So right there, just the way they word that question puts it in a very negative way so that adults will want to say, yes, we don't yes. want our kids exposed to that. Right. And um, I have an idea of what we can do. Maybe we could uh, have some sort of rating system for games. So we know how violent they are, and uh, maybe put on video game consoles some sort of parental control to prevent uh, games being played that are outside of certain rating. Could we try that? Oh, 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 crap! We already have that, don't we? Yeah, unfortunately, nobody seems to care about that. Right. If you care about what your kids are playing, one, don't buy the games because what, kids are going to pop out six hundred sixty bucks to buy a game. Or, uh, and if you do care that much. All you do is you turn on a setting. So I don't understand why there's so much a discussion for that. We're for for changing laws for people that have the power to make changes in their own house themselves. Well, what gets me is these stores are most of them already have um, corporate policies to this effect. Walmart has a policy where they won't sell you an M-rated game. Well, they won't even carry adult-only rated games, but they won't sell you an M-rated game if you're under 18 or whatever. They won't sell you an R-rated movie if you're under 17. And GameStop, they won't sell you a game if you're under 18, which, in my experience, depending on how well you know the manager, you can get around that. Um, I mean, I think I've only been carded like three or four times in my whole life. But then again, I've always been told that I look a little on the old side anyway. But a lot of these major corporations already have policies to this effect so why this is why they're acting like this is a much bigger deal than it is I don't know why this has to be a law when all the companies already basically enforce this themselves it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense yeah so chalk this up to very targeted um, fodder that's curated just so they can pass more laws yeah, I'm kind of curious to see what the Supreme Court decides on this because there's been 12 other state Supreme Courts that have said, no, you can't do this. This is a violation of free speech. So I'm hoping that the Supreme Court will side with all the other Supreme Courts, say that this is a free speech issue, just so we can get all these Jack Thompsons and everything to shut up for once. Right. And uh, this... And then our next story, a U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals actually um, moved to overturn laws to make uh, searching a computer easier for authorities instead of harder, making subpoenas more general instead of specific. So this this next story is is really set unsettling, saying that basically the example was they asked for the records of four athletes. And they got an Excel spreadsheet of all the athletes that have been that tested positive for steroids, and so now they're going after everyone on the list instead of the what the warranty warrant 
asked for, which is just the 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 few that were listed. Yeah, this this came as a nine two ruling from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. So again, like I, I think this is a story I mentioned on last week's show. The Ninth Circuit only apply or this ruling in the Ninth Circuit only applies to the people that live in the Ninth Circuit, which I think is like California, Washington, Oregon, I think Idaho, um, I think Nevada, and maybe Arizona, I think. I, I don't know. You have to Google the whole circuit court boundaries or whatever. I don't remember what I looked to find all that up. But So this essentially just applies in there, but I guess the, there was a ruling last year at, that I must have completely missed or, and didn't realize it. Or maybe this is... I think it was last year. But anyway, the ruling that they had basically said if you're going to search a computer, you can you can only search or grab off the hard drive exactly what you're looking for. You can't go mm-hmm. snooping around for something else. So, for example, if you know that a specific image of child pornography is on a person's computer, you can get just that image. If you come across information on there for, say, like bomb-making plans, you can't do anything with that. You can't charge them as a terrorist or anything like that. But now that's kind of been thrown out because I guess it was creating too many issues as to where computer searches were essentially grinding to a halt because the guidelines, because of this privacy ruling, were so strict. Yeah, what they should actually have done is, or what the law to my understanding was, is that they would go in, they would get the four names and see that there's an Excel spreadsheet of all these other names, get another warrant saying, hey, now I have probable cause, I found this other stuff, can I get a warranty to, oh, warranty, can I get a warrant to do additional searches for additional violators? So they should at least be able to have probable cause, I mean, from those four names, to request a, a, a broader search warrant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, apparently now they're just taking it back to the point of you can only look for what the warrant says. You don't have, and you don't have to go through any extra steps or whatever. Because I guess it was getting to the point where they were actually sending hard drives to third-party companies to pull the data off because the local yeah. governments were worried that if they happened to come across something else that they weren't looking for, it would end up causing them all kinds of other grief. Yeah, and that's a safe way of doing it. But also it's leaving it to the description of this third party to know what is relevant specifically to the warrant, which it should be explicit. Yeah, well, and a lot of these um, companies that do this hard drive data recovery and stuff tend to charge, I think it's like at least like a thousand bucks a pop. Mm-hmm. So that can get rather expensive rather quickly. But uh, if you're looking for security, I recommend using TrueCrypt and encrypting your whole drive. Yeah, and double double encryption is good too. Hidden hidden uh, partitions. Yeah, that that's good too. There, there, there's all kinds of great things that you can do. Yeah, unfortunately, they don't have them on cell phones yet. Yeah, that that's one of the things I've been kind of surprised. It's like you don't have you don't see anything about tools for encrypting all your cell phone data. Yeah, there's a remote wipe and there's a, you know, basically key um sorry. There's there's pin codes you can do you know, and swipe patterns to to lock your screen. 
um, but not to encrypt the data. So if they're able to bypass that, the, they still they, that's only one layer of protection. And that's something that uh, the student in this high school uh, wish she had wish she had on her phone when it got confiscated during homeroom. Ooh, I was thinking you were going into another story, but I wasn't thinking I should have combined the two uh, stories. But yeah, apparently a school is going to pay a student $33,000, minus whatever legal fees I'm sure, for the teacher taking away her phone and then digging through her phone to find private nude photos that she was planning on sexting to her boyfriend. Yeah, those were private photos. Um, she So... She wasn't allowed to use her phone during homeroom, so it was confiscated. All that is well, fine, and dandy. But when this, when the teacher went the other step and actually started snooping through the phone, um, she found, uh, I'm guessing the teacher's a she, uh, found these nude photos that, sh- that the student was going to send her boyfriend, turned the photos in, uh, and the student got detention. And another layer of complexity is that there's... Uh, there's child pornography charges that are also filed, and uh, even though the settlement's with the school district, um, the young the young student is also still fighting criminal charges at this point. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure that it was still fighting criminal charges. It was that the district attorney were, or whatever was, yeah, there, there were threats from prosecutors saying that yeah. they were going to charge her with child pornography, and apparently... Although, I guess it was the ACLU that helped get this case settled, but I guess maybe after this happened, they went through and searched other kids' phones, and they found even more of these images as to where apparently the ACLU is still pushing forward with a lawsuit against the prosecutors, saying that um, basically this stuff can't be considered child pornography. Right, it's kind of like they're with statutory rape. Mm-hmm. So young kids, young kids having sex, okay. Young kid, older adult, not okay. So maybe it's the same thing with sexting or whatever you want to call it when you when they're sending pictures of naked kids, if they're all kids, then that that should be legal, I guess is the is the thought process with that. Mhm. Yeah, I I've never been a I've kind of gotten to where I really hate the way these um, laws are for stuff like this. I mean, I, it seems like we had a story, it's been a, num- a good number of months ago, maybe a year or so ago, about the number of, or just how common sexting is. I think it's like, what was it, like one in three teens participate in sexting, I think? I, don't, I, don't I thought you were about to say that. when you were starting talking, you said, I've never been, I thought you were going to say, I've never been a fan of kitty porn. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, when it's something that common, you yeah. can't just come up with these laws and say, okay, if you do this, we're going to child, we're going to file charges against you as a sexual predator and throw you in prison and put you on the sexual offenders list and all this other kind of stuff. I mean, that's stupid. Yeah, that's changing the lives of a third of the youth in America, which is that's very drastic. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, th- I think a, a lot of the issues is this is just kind of a cultural thing more than anything. I mean, if you go to any company where there's, or any, excuse me, any country where there's like a large tribal culture, nudity is a common thing. That's not something mm-hmm. they even 
Or France. Twice, though. Yeah. That, too. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's one of the things where kids need to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can't yell at the kid not to touch the stove, don't touch the stove. They won't really understand until they burn themselves. So they they have to understand how to control their own privacy at some point. So, well, so, and in, in most cases, how often is this usually going to come back to bite the kids? I mean, yeah, it may get passed around school, I may get teased, whatever, but I mean... Like any major consequences. I mean, unless you're planning on running for political office, mm-hmm. this probably isn't going to have tremendous consequences for you down the road, unless maybe you get a stalker or something like that. But for the average person, it's not going to cause these huge life-altering issues, like your like adults want to make you believe. Yeah, I, I, I'm and, not and, endorsing and it by any means. I'm just true, but saying you got that perb factor too. Like, who's gonna find a a picture of a 17 year old kid and start passing that around? I mean, that's kind of sick. Yeah. Well, I, I there's enough porn on the internet anyway. It's would be surprising to find one photo out of all the millions that are on the internet. Yeah. You're like, oh, that's Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of things that you can search for, apparently you can't search on Cool anymore. Yeah, that's the search engine that's spelled C U I L. They used used to boast that their index was was uh, bigger than Google's, and uh, they could provide more and better searches. But uh, looks like they couldn't search for an investor, or or at least it it, it fell uh, apart at the last minute. So their funding's gone. They're about to liquidate. And I think as of Friday, you can't go to cool.com. Yeah, supposedly they're looking to try and regroup and get the site back live, but Cool basically only had any publicity the very first week that it came out, and that was it. And the only reason it got any publicity was the fact that it had a cool, a kind, of, kind of a cool magazine layout to search results. Granted, the search results weren't very good in most cases, but mm-hmm. the layout was a whole lot more visually appealing than maybe Google is. Uh, I, I think maybe Bing hasn't beat at this point, but um, especially if you've seen the latest version of Bing, and this is just kind of a little aside, um, did you happen to watch the um, keynote for the Internet Explorer 9 beta launch last week? No, I didn't. Oh, Internet Explorer 9... Looks interesting. It's fast. Um, I posted a video on the blog that was on that uh, Christina Warren did on Mashable, just kind of walking through some of the features and stuff, and it showed it constantly crashing. But Whoa. yeah, it, it, it just no. I mean, it's really fast and everything. But personally, does, I, it, does it crash really fast? Yeah, it seemed to do that a uh, good job of that too. But I I presume bugs and stuff like that'll be worked out soon, but personally I hate the whole user interface of it. I don't like the idea of having the tabs on the same line as the address bar because then you have less space for tabs and anyway, that that's a whole other story. But they also showed off the new Bing that will primarily take advantage of Internet Explorer 9 with HTML5 and all the um, GPU acceleration and everything. And the new Bing looks amazing. Really? I mean, it blows Google right out of the water. And I'll have to see if I can find the link to the video, the keynote, and I'll try and see if I can stick it in the show notes. 
but the Bing stuff was absolutely amazing. Well, bravo, uh, Microsoft, and actually using uh, eating their own dog food. Uh, maybe we'll see some other accelerated projects, maybe uh, Hotmail or something like that, uh, using enhanced graphics that are available for IE9. Yeah, one of the big things that got everybody's attention was that you know the big pretty image that's on Bing every day? Yes. Or a new image every day? Mm-hmm. Now with HTML5, it can do video. In the background. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, as to where instead of an image every day, you, you can still do images. And apparently they've worked with the folks in their deep zoom department, I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm where you can zoom into images. Now you can zoom into these great big images and stuff so you can get like real small details and stuff. But you can also do the, the video. The video specifically that they showed was a beach, so you saw all the water coming up on the beach and stuff like that. It, it was really cool. Great. But, awesome. But, but yeah, I highly recommend everybody go check out that video. If you're wanting to learn more about Internet Explorer or you just want to see kind of what's coming for Bing, uh, it's some really impressive stuff. But anyway, back to this cool, like I said, they only got any attention just because of the fact that it was a couple of ex-Google employees with a magazine layout. It's just that their search engine was never very good, and they got like a week worth of press, then after that, absolutely nothing. And I think, to be honest, I think a big part of their problem was the fact that it's not a normal spelling of the word cool. It's C-U-I-L. Who's right. going to remember CUIL as a search engine? Yeah, and plus that uh, it was it was overhyped and underdelivered, um, and and it also had some stability problems on launch day in which it kept going down. So that's that's probably some big issues that they were having, and you, you know you only have one time to have a first impression. Yeah, well, and I can kind of see stuff like that on launch day, especially with as much press as they got. But I guess they were supposedly in the final stages of an acquisition, which apparently fell through. They might be able to, they might be able to get that back, but they've already told their employees, "Go home. You're not getting paid." So mm-hmm. essentially, it's all pretty much dead at this point. Although supposedly there are some companies that are interested in purchasing it for its assets, particular algorithms and patents and stuff like that, which I don't know what kind of patents they have, I haven't bothered to look. But presumably Google and Microsoft are both interested. I would think Ask Jeeves would be interested and whatever other search companies that are still out there. Yeah, and it says here on TechCrunch their funding is $33 million, which I'm not sure if their company is even worth that um, for just the IP. So uh, I have no idea even if they would be able to recoup their costs through, through the, an acquisition or being separated just to sell the IP. Yeah, I, I don't know. It kind of an, it, it seemed like a really interesting idea. I like the idea of the magazine layout for checking stuff out. I, I liked it when I first tried it, but the results were terrible. So yeah, I, maybe I mean, for something like an iPad or something, if they rolled out specific apps to, to for something like that, that might work better. Yeah, I think it would probably be better on something like that. And, I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested to see if we could get like Google results, but in this magazine format of cool. Mm-hmm. That would be interesting. So a cool front end to Google. Yeah. Basically. Um, speaking of which, one of the... Just, again, back to the whole Bing thing. One of the things that they 
showed off was basically doing some filtering for search terms. So they showed off if you search a very hard search term for a, a search engine, in their case, they used the word beaches, which that's hard for a search engine to know what you're talking about. Are you talking about a specific beach? Do you need a vacation at the beach? All kinds of stuff. Well, somehow it generates all these different kinds of filters so that you can go through, filter the results down, and come up with some awesome search results. Again, just some really interesting stuff coming out of the Bing team. But anyway, speaking of Google, apparently you're going to now have two-factor authentication on Google Apps. This this is something I'm really excited about. Yeah, and also it's uh, for apps, this is really going to help with their enterprise uh, sale and making sure that data is secure um, when you're talking about corporate data. So what it does is it uses a cell phone as basically a token. So you have your username and password, and you can use your cell phone for uh, another layer of authentication to make sure that uh, through phishing attacks or through through uh, any other attacks that if someone does get your username and password, they'll never get this third token, which is your cell phone. Yeah, this is. I've been a big fan of multi or a big fan of multi-factor authentication for a while. I don't really, I don't usually get the opportunity to use it, but. That's one of the things that I've always kind of been concerned about, being that if my username and password got out there as to where somebody else could have it, I'd kind of be screwed, especially considering how I manage my passwords and stuff like that, which, for the sake of my own security, I won't go into. But, I mean, it's not like I use 1Password for everything. I'm not that stupid. Mm-hmm. But having And that some... password's not password. Right. But... <laughs> Um, being able to have something else like this where it's like, okay, you have, I'm going to give you this much information, you send me back some other bit of information, then I'll pass it back to you, as to where it's basically, it's doing a lot better at guaranteeing you are who you say you are. I mean, being able to text you a, a number to enter in to show that, yes, you have the phone or whatever, I think that's a great way of doing it. Until you lose your phone. Then you're screwed. Well, even if you lose your phone, you still have your phone number. So you can get a replacement, move it over, and and then start, be, start being able to, to use this second two-level authentication again. Yeah. Uh, but as long as your phone is not wrapped in the post-it notes of your passwords, you're also, uh, you also should be good there. Mm-hmm. Well, and presumably the second factor, this number that they send you, would be automatically generated in a random number every time. So it's not like it's going to be the same every time, which would kind of defeat the purpose. Yes. So, so if you happen to be, if you happen to use Google Apps, or if your company or organization happens to use Google Apps, I highly recommend checking this out once you are able to get it. Apparently it's going to be a couple of months yet before this rolls out to everybody, but definitely a great security feature. I'd, I'd, li- I'd like to see this for the regular Gmail, to be honest. Like, having it through uh, apps and stuff is nice, but I'd definitely like to see it for regular Gmail, although I would probably think that something like that would be more of a Gmail Labs feature because I don't think everybody wants to have to deal with it. Agreed, yes. I know I wouldn't. <laughs> I would, just because it would make me feel geeky and give me some geek cred. <laughs> um, 
moving on to our next story is about the Swedish Pirate Party. Uh, unfortunately, they did not uh, reprise the success that they experienced uh, in the previous elections. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how to understand the story. It seems like, from what I gather from the story, it's that these the parliamentary people that were elected last year it must have been like only a one year term kind of thing. Although, no, it's a it's a rolling four year kind of like um, the Senate. Like the Senate has six year terms, but there's elections every two years, so a third goes up uh, every two years. Mm-hmm. It seems to be the same way here that certain amount of seats come up every year. So they retain those two seats and they keep that um, for four years. But every year, a certain amount of seats are up for election, and they weren't able to gain any more seats. Well, see, the reason I, I'm reading this differently is that apparently you have – if the Pirate Party, their big thing has been as far as being willing to be the host of the Pirate Bay and WikiLeaks is mm-hmm. that they would have parliamentary immunity because – they could host it inside the parliament's building or whatever, host these websites. Well, in the story, it's saying that they won't be able to do that with parliamentary immunity. So that's why I'm thinking that this is that they no longer have anybody in parliament now. Oh, no, because at the end of the story, it says um, that the, they still have two seats in the EU. Uh, I think that's the... Oh, yeah, here it is, the second to the last paragraph. Uh, for now, they have to settle for their two seats in Europe. Yeah, I, I think this is um, a case that we're talking about the Swedish parliament instead of the European parliament. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, and, I, I mixed it up, yeah. And for them to get the parliamentary immunity, it has to be the Swedish parliament rather than the EU parliament. Okay. So, essentially... This doesn't mean a huge amount for Sweden. I mean, of course, it's a big defeat for the Pirate Party in Sweden. But the real issue here is now that the Pirate Bay and WikiLeaks won't have parliamentary immunity. Yeah, and apparently so, also the the writing was on the walls. Polls show that this is the type of result that they should expect. Yeah, apparently they only got like 1. 4% of the vote or something like that when they needed 4% of the votes to get a uh, seat or whatever, which, I don't know, that seems to be a very different system than the way we run things here in the States. It's not based on percentage. It's based on who gets the majority. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm kind of curious to see what's going to happen now with those two sites because, of course, everybody wants to take down the Pirate Bay and all the governments and everybody wants to take down WikiLeaks, so I'm kind of curious to see what, where those two sites go from here. I mean, the Pirate Bay, always, they always have backup plans, so I'm not too worried about them. But, especially WikiLeaks, I'm kind of curious to see what's going to happen with them. Yeah, I wouldn't worry. Uh, they seem to be taking care of themselves thus far. Um, there's always going to be somewhere for them to go. Yeah, I, I think the Pirate Bay and WikiLeaks should combine and buy Sealand like the Pirate Bay wanted to do several years ago. <laughs> Wiki Bay is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, that that seems like the best idea to me. Yeah, maybe we should just have... I mean, there's not a lot of free land out there. That's probably one of the, other, the only ones. Um, 
they don't have uh, they, maybe they should own, start their own little community of of free internet and free uh, free love of bits. Uh, they should find some rich guys, get them to dump a bunch of dirt in the ocean, build up their own little island right in the middle of international waters, start up their own little country right there, and just and lay some internet pipe to the island. Maybe the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Maybe they should do that. Sounds like a good idea to me. <laughs> but anyway, switching gears a little bit to e-readers. Apparently, Barnes & Noble projects that it's going to have a billion dollars in digital revenue thanks to its Nook platform by 2013, as well as a 25% market share, which is a number I highly doubt. I can see the billion dollars, but I can't see the 25% market share. Yeah, unless they actually, uh, if we're talking about a new Nook that's revolutionary, which is uh, it's quite possible between now and 2013. Um, I was actually talking to an EPUB friend that I met at SobCon this past weekend, and she was talking about usability is not very good, touchscreen's not there, color's not there, um, and, and, and the navigation is also not there. So if all those problems are fixed, and also we're talking about a price reduction, I can see that it's, it's possible that they can uh, get up their market share to that much. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I got to try out a Nook at uh, Best Buy not too long ago, and just, just for a brief two or three minutes, just to try and compare it a little bit to my Kindle. And I will say that the navigation seems to be a bit on the terrible side. Uh, it isn't. It doesn't feel as slow as it did in the beginning because I know they've done a lot of updates since, and it seems to be halfway decent compared to what all I had read about it initially. But I, I still don't think it's going to be. It's something that's going to do very well, other than for existing Barnes and Noble customers. I, they said, I believe in the post that the that the book industry is about to go undergo a major contraction where especially a lot of the smaller bookstores are going to basically go out of business and Barnes and Noble's um, revenues basically going to go from 21 billion to 19 billion whereas the digital stuff is just going to keep going up and up so I'm I'm guessing it's a case of they're hoping that they can convert people that are buying the dead tree versions over to the digital versions mm-hmm. but I don't know losing two billion dollars versus gaining one billion dollars that doesn't quite add up to me but yeah but they uh, also said they also said that this number is attributed to digital revenue which may also not just be the nook it could be software um, that's loaded on PCs and other tablets like the iPad yeah. Oh, I'm questioning some of their figures in here also, because I mean, it said that they have, um, oh, what was it like, twenty percent of the digital book lending market. Which, oh well, yeah, <laughs> they're the only one who lends books. Yeah. Which okay, why is it twenty-one percent, not a hundred percent? I can't lend books on the Kindle. I mean, I can't lend books on the iPad. Unless they're talking about open EPUB or something like that, in which there is no uh, copper protection on those. 
Yeah, but in that, I would say that's more of a case of giving a copy to somebody rather than lending it to them. Because the Nook actually has some a feature on it where you can lend it to somebody where it'll be on their device for a certain number of days and you won't be able to access it on your device for that certain number of days until the ownership transfers back to you or whatever. But since they're the only one with that feature, I don't see how they can only have 18% of that market. And that that just doesn't make... Or 20% of that market or whatever... And when they only supposedly have 18% market share in the ebook reader market anyway. It, it, their numbers just don't make a tremendous amount of sense. Yeah, that's the thing with numbers. You know, I say lies, damn lies, and statistics. Um, show your work. Show your work. That's all I got to say. Let's see where these numbers are coming from. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm guessing that they probably got a um, big boost in their numbers after the prices fell. And they released the Wi-Fi version for 149, which of course Amazon came in with the Kindle and their own Wi-Fi version and undercut them to 140. So I don't know. Essentially, the Kindle's still by far the better buy. It's got a lot more features and whatever with like the browser and everything than the Nook does, and it's just an overall better experience. I'm if, actually, speaking of the Kindle, if anybody is interested, I am thinking of selling my Kindle because I want to, or selling my Kindle 2, which is not the international version. It's the one that's actually on Sprint, so it's the good version. But I'm thinking of upgrading to the Kindle 3. So if anybody's interested, I might be interested in doing a deal with you. But speaking of the Kindle, Apparently, there's been yet another school that has replaced their textbooks with Kindles, but this time it's actually turning out to be pretty good. Yeah. Um, what's pretty good? Sorry, I just missed that last part. Um, the whole swapping out dead tree books for the, uh, for a Kindle. Yes. Um, the school. Uh, well, I mean, I remember the time when I had tons of books, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I would have back problems from the, the amount of books that I had. We also had this thing with uh, you can only go to your locker because of you know threats of guns and violence and stuff like that only twice a day. So I, I ended up carrying a majority of my books for most of the time. And that That's a bit crazy. When I was in school, I mean, in high school we didn't have lockers. In middle school we did, and it was just a case of in between classes we'd always go to our lockers. Personally, I never did much with my lockers. I just had one of those little roll-around backpacks, so I never had to worry about the back problems or whatever. I'd just throw 60 pounds worth of books in the roller-up backpack, and off I went. I did things the smart way. Yeah. Um, but but I would I, if I had the choice, I mean, or if you had the choice, would you go digital? Yes and no. I mean, there's if it's something like for an English class or whatever, where... What you're doing is like just text, whether you're like reading Beowulf or Old Man in the Sea or whatever, something like that. Definitely, a Kindle would be a by far a much better choice. But when you're dealing with something like, say, a science book or a math book or something like that, stuff like that isn't going to translate near as well on a Kindle. Mm-hmm. Where 
like with a science book or whatever, it's um, very focused on, on how the page is laid out as far as, okay, this image goes with this bit of text as to where it, you can get a better feel of what it is they're trying to talk about because you can see the graphs and whatever. Stuff like that I don't think will translate too well onto a Kindle without um, some major rework, not to mention images are always better in color anyway, as to where I would say that iPads would probably be the better choice. But I, I would say for most things, I, I think a Kindle version would be a whole lot better. But I don't know, the one thing I'd be worried about is students, like, mishandling the Kindles. I, I, I've seen... I haven't experienced it myself. My Kindle seems to be fairly well built, but I've seen ones where the... if Like the hidden... Like the little grips or the little hooks on the official Kindle um, uh, cover mm-hmm. will crack the case of the Kindle. I, I've seen people that just barely drop it or something inside they'll throw it in their book bag and something in their book bag will hit it and break the screen or whatever i i would say something like that would be a bit of a concern but i don't, I don't know i think it'd probably be the cheaper way for most schools to go because i mean you can get a 140 dollar kindle it's the wi-fi version and everything and a lot of the books you're going to be reading are probably like public domain books and stuff anyway so you'll be saving quite a bit of money there Right, and if this spreads to school districts, which negotiate books across the whole district, especially large ones like the ones here in Texas, um, they can mandate that they be uh, available in uh, digital form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, w- I would definitely like to see them on Kindle. I mean, I, I prefer a Kindle myself, but I think seeing them on an iPad would probably have a greater benefit just because the iPad can do stuff like play video and stuff like that. And that, I think that would do a lot better for making the books more, a little bit more entertaining and interactive, which I think is one of the big problems with books in schools is that you're assigned to read a certain great big chunk of text or say, okay, go here, read this couple of chapters. If it's not something you're into, you're not going to care about it. Or if you're, that's assuming you're going to read it at all. I I was one of those people from the eighth grade up until about what is it? Maybe about a year and a half ago, I did not read any books, other than maybe instruction manuals for various gadgets and stuff that I own. I did not read any books, or at least as far as reading them like start to finish or anything like that. Maybe I'll read a chapter or two here and there wherever I need something. But I did not read any books. If I had something like a Kindle, I was I definitely read a lot more now. But if I had something like an iPad where if I come to a certain point in the book where it's like, okay, maybe I'm not really grasping it, they have a link to a video that I can click on and all of a sudden a video pops up and starts playing that better explains it, then I, I would definitely be a lot more interested in something like that. Yeah, it's kind of like a, the YouTube effect. It would be nice if books had that. Like uh, you're reading a story and you see on the sidebar adjacent stories that give you more information. Um, that way you can build upon knowledge um, more organically. And, and it'd be nice if books were structured in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm actually reading a book right now called "The Way We're Working Isn't Working." I don't I don't remember um, 
who the book is by. I don't have my Kindle in my bedroom with me right now. It's out in my laptop bag. But in that book, so far at least in the first quarter of it, there's no images or anything like that. But there's links, like almost at least once a page, linking to various studies of one thing or another. And I highly recommend this book to anybody if you're looking to, like, give yourself more energy um, and be more productive and stuff like that. But it's like they're always constantly citing these studies as to where I can go through, click on one of these links, and it'll open up a browser. Well, on the Kindle, or on a regular book, A, you can't do that. On the Kindle, it doesn't show up very well. On the Kindle 3, I'm sure it's probably better since it's using a WebKit-based browser. But doing something like that on an iPad would be a much better experience. And that's just one of the great things about these electronic books is that you can do stuff like that that you can't do with the dead tree versions. Mm-hmm. Not, not to mention you don't... One of the things that I was always terrified about in school was they would always make us put covers on our books just to supposedly protect... Yeah, I remember the, that. We used to use, um, uh, use old paper bags to do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's usually what I would do is I'd get like a paper grocery sack or maybe I think like the last couple of years of high school or whatever, I would have, <coughs> excuse me, I would have these um, stretchable cloth things that I would wrap around them. But the, the school would always be absolutely nuts about keeping them in the condition that they're in. If there's a tiny bend on one of the covers, if maybe there's a tiny scratch on the corner of one of the covers, Nothing that would keep you from reading the book or anything. They would go absolutely nuts and charge you the whole price of the book. Because according to them, they supposedly had to replace the book, even though they would continue to use the book. Don't have to worry about that with a Kindle. Yep. You may have to replace a Kindle, but at least that's something that makes a little bit more sense than replacing a book, especially if they're going to keep using the book anyway. Right. And uh, what Intel's trying to do is keep people from replacing their computers uh, by letting you incrementally upgrade it by biting, buying a uh, $50 um, like feature cards. Yeah, this is an interest, kind of an interesting story that came out like last week. Oh, yikes, we're, we're like about an hour into the show. Gotta yeah. Fly through here. Anyway, um, this is... I was kind of surprised by this when I first saw it. Apparently, this is only on one model of a gateway computer where Intel has come up with some sort of a way that they have basically locked off certain features of the hardware, such as hyper-threading, as to where if you want those features, you have to spend $50 on this little upgrade card. Is what they're calling it, and it'll allow you to download a piece of software that will then unlock this functionality. Which I don't know. I can't say I'm a huge fan of the idea of having to pay extra for features that are already there. I don't know. I'm kind of curious to see just how long it's going to take for something like this to get hacked and be able to take your own to be able to do this yourself without the fifty dollars anyway. But at first, I wasn't. I wasn't too happy with it, but at the same time, I can definitely see why Intel's doing it, and it makes a lot of sense. Well, this has been around forever, actually. Well, I shouldn't say forever, but quite a long time. But more in the enterprise space, where companies would sell a large server and then um, 
uh, they would have more RAM or more hard drive space, and they would send a technician to type in a couple codes, and then turn those features on. So we've we've over the years seen a lot of enterprise features trickle down to consumers. Uh, when you talk about even multiprocessor and hyperthreading, those were all introduced in the enterprise space first before they're consumer uh, productized. Um, so this just sounds like this, they're testing this model out um, to see how to see how um, how popular it could be as a consumer play. I, I think with I think this is mostly just going to be a case with geeks and not with the average Joe that they're going to feel ripped off by this because if you're buying one of these computers, you know what processor's in it, so you would think you're going to get the full functionality of that processor not, and that you're not going to have to spend an extra $50 to get that functionality. The average person probably isn't going to notice and they're going to, and they may buy this and say, oh, hey, now my computer's faster. Lucky me. But, yeah, I, something like this has kind of been around for a long time and it makes a lot of sense because essentially... Doing something like this, you can make one processor, but have it set as at different levels as to where people can purchase whatever level they want, and then Intel only has to pump out one processor, and they can just restrict resources to whatever to have what appears to be a different level of performing processor. And from my understanding, for years, and I don't know if it's still the case or not. But the Celeron processors always used to be Pentium processors, just that there was something wrong with them, yeah. so they would block off a certain amount of L2 cache or something like that, and then just turn around and sell this essentially defective processor as a Celeron processor, and it would just be this um, underclocked defective piece of garbage, basically, that would still technically work. Yeah. So what your opinion, you think this will catch on? I think it will. Um, I can't say I necessarily want it to catch on, but yeah, I think it will. I'm kind of curious to see just how. Supposedly, this is just kind of a trial thing, but I've got a feeling that it's definitely going to catch on with maybe a little bit better marketing and stuff. I mean, the way they have it on this card is they have it. It's like this is for your Gateway SX2841 dash. 09E. I mean, you got to do a better job at that, and and, and that's really kind of Acer's fault. Acer, of course, owning Gateway, because when it comes to naming stuff, they're really horrible, and they just throw model numbers on there instead of like having actual names. But I, I think if this is marketed in the right way, I think this could definitely catch on and probably be a whole lot better for Intel, because it means that they're not having to produce a whole bunch of different processors. And I think, like, AMD and whoever else could definitely get in on this game, too. Well, the only drawback is that um, the processor is just one portion of the functionality of a computer. And so when you're talking about, um, you know, typing this code and you upgrade your processor, um, it's just going to be an incremental benefit when we're talking about overall performance. So um, it, 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 it may not be worth it. It might be worth it at that point to use that fifty dollars to invest it into a, a better system. Right. If you want to see a real big performance on um, performance difference on your computer, go to a solid state drive. That'll give you a better, a bigger performance boost than upgrading pretty much any other part in your computer, assuming you're not stuck on like five, twelve megs of RAM or something. Mm-hmm. 
All right, let's move on to the next story. Let's keep this train rolling. Yeah, we're way past time here. Mm-hmm. Uh, last story, I accidentally just screwed up. First, generation, first yeah. generation Windows Phone 7s won't be on Verizon or Sprint. So first generation is going to be GSM, GSM phones only uh, with CDMA phones coming later on. Uh, which makes total sense because we want um, because CDMA is just an American thing. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but you'd think with when they've been working on Windows Phone Seven for several years now, you gotta kind of think that they're that this isn't just like something that's just like, oh, hey, this is last minute. But there's a lot of people that use CDMA, so maybe you want to throw something in there. I mean, you kind of had to see this coming down that if you're gonna be a platform that's going to be on all the different carriers, you need to have this stuff in there. So why not have it on a couple of the biggest carriers in the U.S. to ship seems to be completely stupid. But the biggest carrier is AT&T still. And, yeah, and that's uh, only because of the iPhone. Right. Um, and But but once you talk about uh, iPhone and T-Mobile, when you add those two up, uh, that's that's significant enough not to have immediately immediately uh, a CDMA a CDMA competitor. Yeah, but with as bad as AT and T's network is already, thanks to the iPhone, and if you're a Sprint co- and or yeah, thanks to the iPhone. Before I get off on something else, there, um, I don't think that that necessarily needs to be the platform you want to go after right from the beginning just because especially when these devices first release you're going to want to get as good a press as absolutely possible so you're much better off having on a a network like verizon first just so you Mm -hmm. can get that initial good press instead of having it out on at&t first where it's like oh i'm having connection issues all the coverage sucks that kind of stuff you don't want any of the network issues overshadowing the operating system or the devices at the beginning, yeah, you, you that is you, that is so true. It's more of a controlled environment, um, and so it makes a ton of sense to do it that way too. But it also restricts how many people can participate, um, and also um, we're talking about migration costs. The good thing about GSM is that you can just pop out a SIM and put it put it in a phone. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's why I like it. Um, but. Uh, and if we're talking about world standards, I think actually um, if we're talking about conversion rates, we won't actually see any major adoption for Windows Phone until two years because that's when contracts start expiring and that's when we saw the adoption of Android tick up. So, you know, this all could be uh, moot. I mean, there's no use to hurrying because it's still going to take two years for people to adopt it. Yeah. Well, and supposedly... There's talk of there already being a major rewrite of the operating system in the works, which, depending on who you talk to, kind of depends on what it sounds like. Some people, it more sounds like maybe Windows Phone 7.5 or something like that, where it's going to be something big. Or, in some cases, there's other people saying... No, it's more going to be smaller stuff, like maybe adding multitasking, CDMA support, um, stuff like that. So, I don't know, depending on just how major this rewrite is that's in progress, maybe they realize that things aren't the way it should be for launch, so they're trying to get something out as soon as 
possible to make it what it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I don't know, I'm hopefully I'll get to actually get my hands on a device just to play with it this weekend since I'm supposed to go to a Windows Phone 7 developer event up in Denver. Either that or I'll go to the one in Springs in, in like a month or whatever. But in Colorado Springs. But yeah, I I don't know, I'm kind of curious to see how this is going to work cuz at first I was really excited about Windows Phone 7. Now I'm starting to get real hesitant on it just kind of the way things are shaking out for the launch stuff is at this point they're playing catch up and if you're playing catch up you can't afford to have major blunders yeah what they're going to need to do is make sure that their devices are priced appropriately and that's the only way they can have a different uh appeal uh if they're in the $99 range at least for their low end devices they have a chance to compete against Android and the iPhone, at least to play in the same arena. If they price their phones at $300, $400, um, you know, so more expensive, less features, um, they're definitely going to fall straight on their face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the question is, will we see another flop like the Kin? I sure hope not. Um, but yeah. even still, this is such a big endeavor. Even if it flops, they'll still be throwing money at it. Yeah, I'm sure. But anyway, that would be all of the stories for this week. And you can check out all of those for all the details that we didn't get to on globalgeeknews.com. I know we're running about eight, nine, ten minutes late here. So, um, yeah, don't forget to check that out. You can, of course, we'd always love to hear your feedback, whether you're an alien or not. You, Of course, you can either stick that in the comments on the post on globalgeeknews.com or you can drop us an email, globalgeeknews at gmail.com. Or you can send us a tweet at globalgeeknews, or I am or I am at PCNerd37, or Wesley, who is at Wesley83. Mm-hmm. We definitely always like feedback, good, bad, whatever. We like to hear it. I'm always looking for suggestions, possible guests, whatever. So if you have any ideas for anything, feel free to shoot it my way. Um... Don't forget, we're always looking for people to help out with the show as far as money-wise, whether um, you want to go purchase something from the Global Geek News store, like T-shirts, stickers, hats, whatever. That's always greatly appreciated, as well as just plain donations, whether it's the $5 a month plan or you just want to give one big, great big giant donations. We enjoy the $10,000 donations just as much as the next guy. All right. So, and if you if you want if you donate over a hundred dollars, I'll send you a, a nude photo over text. So <laughs> I will sex sex you for a large donation. Yeah. Speaking of a hundred dollars, like always, if you spend if you donate at least a hundred dollars, I'll send you a um, Global Geek News T-shirt out of the uh, Global Geek News store, which of course you can find link to on globalgeeknews.com as well as in the show notes. But anyway, I think that is it for this week. Unless there's anything you'd like to add. Uh, no, uh, stay happy, people. Sounds good. So we will see everybody next week. Hopefully, maybe we'll find a we'll scare up a guest or two. And until then, we will see you next week. Later. Later. <laughs>